Good afternoon. From the KTOO Newsroom in Juneau, I'm Yvonne Cromery. It started with a tweet asking when the world would get a collection of horror stories by Indigenous writers. Authors Ted Van Alst and Shane Hawk answered the call and soon found themselves with over 100 submissions from new and established writers. Van Alst and Hawk are the Indigenous editors of Never Whistle at Night, published in September by Penguin Random House. KTOO spoke with them about the instability at the heart of the horror genre and how Indigenous authors have used that to tell their stories. I mean, at first it was merely a tweet and they basically said, hey, when are we going to get an Indigenous horror anthology? You know, it's time. And so we were just kind of going back and forth. Um, I think Ted came across it first and we're kind of like mulling it over, you know, who's going to step up and, you know, make this a cool new thing. I don't think either of us thought it was really going to be us at first. We're just kind of like looking around and just slowly but surely uh, it kind of came together by just asking other indigenous writers if they'd be interested in the idea behind the scenes and DMs and emails and just everyone kept saying yes. What does horror mean in the indigenous context? You know, I did an interview talking about horror and why horror and why, because I think because the foundations of horror are inherently unstable. And I think the lives of of folks post contact, if that's what we want to call it, have a lot of instability. There's a lot of, you know, on the other side of settling, there's a lot of unsettling and how people respond to that. So the sort of post-apocalypse that we're living in lends itself to those ideas and how do you express those and they're horrific right and but how do you deal with them do you deal with them in humorous ways do you deal with them in in really graphic ways and i think that this collection reflects a real broad spectrum of how folks deal with horror how folks project horror what that looks like the basis of horror is kind of like being able to peek in vicariously into this kind of safe playground of you know, okay, these people are going to be placed into an awful situation and we're going to see how it plays out. And um, speaking about the post-apocalyptic part, I think what's somewhat different about Indigenous horror is that the people aren't necessarily placed into horrible situations. The horror is kind of already sinking in intergenerationally. I don't know, it's, it's been very interesting reading all these stories and seeing how we all You know, in some ways we have shared histories, we have um, shared experiences, but then there's just a beautiful diversity to how we handle it. You can make something really beautiful that really um, engages with the reader, whether they're Native or non-Native. Can I ask a little bit about how the process of this anthology and gathering these stories happened? Were these all stories that were not published before this anthology? So they're all original That was one of our major stipulations for our contracts that we sent out to people. There are 12 established names in here and 12 new voices. And then there's Ted and me. And so it was a nice, even uh, split between the two. It was very important for us. Our main mission was to increase, you know, the number of people writing Indigenous horror. And I think our open call kind of sparked that. It was July 27, 2021. And we gave people until November 1st, 2021. And basically, uh, it was just Ted and I sharing out the link on uh, all the social platforms, you know, saying, hey, if you're an Indigenous writer, maybe if you're not a writer and you want to try, 
send us your best story. And it was a really fun process, um, really hard to really break it down because we had to say no to so many terrific stories. That's why we're hoping that, you know, there's a volume two, volume three, volume 27, you know, keep it going forever. (laughs) (laughs) How many stories did you get from the open call? Uh, We got over a hundred, I think it's like 105 or so. Right on. Yeah. I mean, I even noticed that in the Hearst ones I got to read. Yeah. The interesting blend of so many different ways to tell stories and ways to tell horror from more historical mid 19th century Alaska as it's being actively colonized by industries and then stories that Mm -hmm. are set now in modern Texas suburbia. And I'm wondering, like, what what themes did you not expect to see the rose out of these stories? There's everything, you know, haunted people, haunted houses. There's, you know, monsters and monstrous people. And, and you know, there are there are themes and concepts throughout. But uh, I think it's important to remember it is, it's not an ethnography. It, it, you know, it says indigenous dark fiction. Thank you so much, you guys. I hope you have a great rest of your night. You too. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Yvonne. That was Shane Hawk and Ted Van Alst, editors of the new indigenous horror anthology, Never Whistle at Night. Three of the indigenous men known as the Fairbanks Four have settled a federal civil rights suit against the city of Fairbanks. George Fries, Kevin Pease, and Eugene Vent agree to drop civil rights violation claims, including coercion of false confessions and fabrication of evidence that led to their being convicted of the 1997 beating death of John Hartman. KUAC's Dan Bross reports. City of Fairbanks attorney Tom Chard says under the agreement finalized in September, Three of the Fairbanks Four accepted monetary settlements in exchange for dropping federal civil rights lawsuits. Kevin Peace, George Fries, and Eugene Vent uh, were uh, offered a settlement of $1.59 million each um, by the city's insurer. Those three individuals uh, agreed to that settlement offer, uh, and so that effectively concludes their uh, litigation against the city. Chard notes that the settlement was offered directly by the Alaska Municipal League Joint Insurance Association. It's extremely unusual for an insurance company to step in and settle something on behalf of their insured without their insured's full participation. So uh, at some point, the insurance company made a decision to act unilaterally. Chart points to the longevity of the case and the potential for additional years of litigation as factors which likely resulted in the insurance settlement. The city has not admitted to any wrongdoing, and the federal civil rights suit continues as the other member of the Fairbanks Four, Marvin Roberts, declined the settlement. I am prepared to wait this out until I see justice It's been eight years since a post-conviction relief hearing during which a key prosecution witness recanted his testimony and a group of other local men were identified as likely responsible for the Hartman murder. The hearing resulted in vacation of the Fairbanks Four convictions, but the men had already served nearly two decades in prison. Wrongfully incarcerated for 18 years of my life. They robbed me of the best years of my life time lost with my family, my loved ones, building a future. I never did get an apology for the many wrongs against me. I never saw accountability for the many wrongs against me. Robert says he hopes the suit also results in law enforcement and legal system changes. 
I would love to see some sort of plan to prevent this type of thing, um, wrongful convictions, wrongful incarcerations. Roberts is awaiting a ruling on a key tenant of the federal civil rights case, the constitutionality of the 2015 release-dismissal agreement under which the Fairbanks Four murder convictions were vacated in exchange for them agreeing not to sue the state and city. Roberts' attorney, Mike Kramer, says Roberts, who was already out on parole, was coerced into signing the agreement. Because the other three were not going to be let out of jail unless Marvin also agreed. And so we believe that's a strong argument. The judge will rule in our favor, in which case the case would proceed to, you know, discovery into into the merits of the police misconduct claims we've made, um, which is what we've been waiting for for seven years. Oral arguments on the legality of the release dismissal agreement were heard in September, including whether it served a public purpose. Other than to relieve public officials of misconduct. U.S. District Court Judge Sharon Gleason is expected to issue a ruling on the release-dismissal agreement soon. The city's defense attorney, Matt Singer, was unavailable for an interview, but in an email said the city has asked the judge to enforce the agreement, adding that Judge Gleason's decision could be appealed by either side to the Ninth Circuit Court. In Fairbanks, I'm Dan Bross. And here in Juneau, it's currently 44 degrees and raining just a little bit. Tonight, the low is 38 degrees. Tomorrow, there's more rain on the way with a high of 40, and that's expected on Friday as well. By Sunday, the chance of rain goes down a bit, as do the temperatures. And on Monday, there's a chance of snow and sunshine with a high of 34 degrees. You're listening to KTOO.